I have the honor of introducing Todd Witcher today, and I've got to tell you, I am a Virgo. And Virgos are supposed to be really good at making lists. Unfortunately, that trait escaped me, so I really admire what the Discover Life in America is doing under Todd's leadership. They are inventorying everything in the Smoky Mountains and makes him the perfect person to talk about our book today. Todd, like I said, is the executive director of Discover Life in America. He is an eighth-generation Tennessean. He worked as an educator at Iams Nature Center for 16 years before going to Discover Life in America. He is an undergraduate from the University of Tennessee in biology. He has a master's in business from um, Lincoln Memorial University and a master's in education from the University of Tennessee. The man knows his stuff. Help me welcome Todd Witcher. Thank you, Mary Palm. I appreciate that. Um, thank you for having me here today. I want to especially thank the library and Emily, who's been great to work with. I appreciate uh, all the emails and all the answering of my questions. So she does a great job with this program, and I'm proud to be a part of it today. I have to say I'm used to talking about this project. I, I do it all the time, and, and this book seemed perfect for that since the project is in the book several times, and the idea of where we came up with this project is, is in the book, The Scientist that Created the Idea, I guess. But after agreeing to do it, I went to the library website and to see who all had spoken before me, and it made me really nervous because there are a lot of really important people. So I feel honored to be here today to talk about uh, this book. And um, the book is called Every Living Thing, and it is a scientific book. It's a discovery book. It's a book about scientists. I, I tried to... Th- go through and find some passages that sort of, uh, I guess, define the book, and um, I'll read some of those to you as we go through. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the scientists that are mentioned in the book and some of their interesting, odd stories, and um, then I'm going to talk a little bit about what we're doing in the Smokies, which is obviously related to what the book is about. I tried to come up with a sentence, because I'm always trying to shorten things our society has built to only understand it if you can say it in two or three words. Once you get past the fourth or fifth word, people sort of go on to the next thing. So it's, it's one of the problems with our project and explaining it because it's complicated. Uh, but in looking at the book and reading it, I decided the, a sentence to describe it would be what is out there, who found it, or who is going to find it. And what we know now is there are a lot of things out there that we don't know about and that we're still finding. I'm going to read a passage uh, that E.O. Wilson wrote for the book, and he is probably my scientific hero, so I was glad that Rob was able to get him to write the intro. Most readers, including many biologists themselves, still think the task of finding and classifying every species of organism has been largely completed. In this very erroneous conception, a new kind of frog or butterfly might indeed seem newsworthy. But in fact, while it is true that perhaps 80% of the flowering plants and 95% of the species of birds are known, only a small fraction of the far greater diversity of insects and other invertebrate animals have been discovered. Fewer than 10% of fungi and many fewer than 1% of microorganisms are known. The way that Rob set up the book it sort of goes from the beginning of what inspired him to write the book, and that was a trip to South America. 
And I don't know how many of you have traveled to South America, but it's an amazing place, and it's a place where you would get inspired to want to know more about biodiversity. I'll tell you a couple of things that happened to me while I was there. One is I've always been interested in ants, and ants are sort of a fascinating creature that have their own societies, and they're thousands of different species and they do all kinds of different things and and Rob actually touches on that in this book there's a whole chapter about a beetle that rides on a colony of ants and it mimics the ant so that the ant doesn't know that it's actually another organism living in in the colony and in the society so and they both reap benefits from that so it's a mutualistic relationship while I was there we went on several hikes we were there at a sort of a preserve that led hikes for educators. And uh, one of the interesting things that happened is when we would go on these hikes, we saw so many ants it was hard to keep up with all of them. And my favorite one was an ant that I actually ate. Um, that we, they kept talking about it. It took me a long time to get up the nerve to do it. But we would walk along and, and the, the guide would say, these are lemon ants. They're really good. People eat them all the time. And so I thought that was interesting. But until the very last day, I decided I wasn't going to do that. But then I did say, I'm never going to be here again, probably, so I should try one. And so I ate one, and I ate another, and I ate another, and I ate another. And they tasted just like lemons. So it's just, just a little tidbit there. One, one of my favorite parts of the book, <clears throat> because of part of my job is working with scientists uh, from, really from all over the world, I enjoyed the part about the scientists and about the history of, of uh, some of the people that have been well-known in science for many years and have made major discoveries. The, the thing that I noticed that is interesting about almost all scientists, and even the ones that I work with today, there are several characteristics that I think they have in common. They all have an uncanny ability to ignore everything else around them except what they're interested in. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's bad. But they're very focused. Almost all scientists you'll find are very focused. Many of them did not start out to look at or study what they ended up being the world's foremost expert in. Some of them didn't even start out in science. A lot of times, and especially these in the book, the scientists are sometimes thought to be insane, or at least a little off their rocker, not only by the people that they meet, but their families, uh, their peers many times, and sometimes their their whole life's work is not accepted till years after their death. So it's, it's not all scientists obviously have that characteristic, but many of them do. Another, another thing that I find interesting, which is a big problem, I think, in today's, in our society, is that many of them had a, a, a scientific mentor or a family member who turned them on to science, either by just as something as simple as taking them out and uh, looking at what lives in a creek or on a hike or going fishing or any of those things. So it's something we're missing today, and it's, it's a characteristic of almost every person that, that is covered in the book and, and people that you meet who are interested in science. And then I think the funniest and the, the most absurd characteristic of most scientists is most of them are obsessed with the genitalia of animals or plants they're studying, and that's because many of the, those species are identified by their genitalia. So you'll find, and he covers this in the book, uh, they're either looking at the size or the shape or how many sex organs that these organisms have. Linnaeus, 
known for mostly his plant collections and figuring out how to name different species. As Linnaeus traveled to different places and different villages, and some of his students did, they would be seeing the same thing, named different things over and over again. And so it was hard to determine what was actually a new species and what was the same thing they had already studied, just had a different name. So this, this is obviously a big breakthrough in science. And then you look, look at uh, Leeuwenhoek, who really invented microscopes and discovered microbiology um, 150 years ago. So a pretty amazing little section on him. And, and uh, he was not really a scientist. This was just one of his interests. Nobody believed he was actually seeing things in those little droplets of water. Of course, none of that was really known until after he was already gone. Uh, there are several other scientists, Carl Sagan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus more on uh, some of the scientists that I've actually worked with that are in the book and that helped us with our project or have been involved in our project. Terry Irwin, who, who's world famous for studying beetles in the tropics. Dan Jansen, who is um, really the person who came up with the idea and designed the project, which is called an all-taxa biodiversity inventory. And, and just... To clarify, our project, our organization is called Discover Life in America. We are a nonprofit. And what we do is called an all taxa biodiversity inventory. And the idea behind that, and I'll get to more details of this when I get to when I talk more about Dan Jansen, the idea behind that is to document all forms of life in a given area. So we actually are working in the Smokies, and that's where our target area is, but you can do an all taxa biodiversity inventory anywhere you choose, if you have the resources and you have the scientists and you have all the, all the know-how. And, and in many cases, we're still learning what all that is. One of the interesting things that sort of is thrown out there now about biodiversity and why it's important for us to document it, one of the reasons, is that we probably will lose about 60% of what exists on Earth before we actually even know what it is. Uh, Terry Irwin is um, still in the tropics. He started in Panama. He's a coleopterist, which is a beetle expert. He's actually been involved in our project in the Smokies. He's been our keynote speaker at one of our conferences. But he sort of revolutionized the idea of biodiversity, he and E.O. Wilson. And he did that by accident. He didn't really even want to go to the tropics, but one of his professors changed a grant location, while he, and he didn't even know about it. When he got back, he got the grant. He thought he was going to be in North America, and the grant would have been changed to Panama, and he almost turned it down. But he went to Panama and is still working on canopy studies. There was the idea that there were things that lived in the canopy, obviously. There was, there was, it, was a known, it was known that there was diversity up there, but not how much. And his study of beetles, and he's sort of perfected a, a method, which is he fogs individual trees. He fogs them with an insecticide and everything in there dies, unfortunately. But that's really the only way he can get up in an 80-foot 80, 80 tree. And he has sheets down on the ground, and all these insects fall out. And what he's, what he's found, and the reason he revolutionized some of the studies of biodiversity is not just by his methodologies, but uh, he, he found, as he, as he worked through these tropical rainforests, that there were about 2,000 species, different species, in each, each different species of tree. And in fact, they didn't believe him for a long time that this was true. Uh, and what he, what he found was 80% of those 2,000 or so species in each species of tree were all new to science. So 80% of the 2,000 or so 
were, had never been documented before because they spend all their life in the canopy. And so people didn't see them. At that time, it was believed there was about a million or a million and a half different species on Earth. And once he finished this study, and he's not finished with it, but once he started sort of estimating what was happening, he, he upped that number to about 30 million. That was very controversial at the time. And with some people, it still is very controversial. But uh, a very interesting guy, he's, he's actually the exception to, and I hope there's none of our scientists in here, but he's the exception to the scientist rule that he's not quirky or he's, you would never know what he does if you just met him and talked to him. He's, he's sort of a normal kind of guy. Uh, very nice and has done a lot of amazing work. The next uh, scientist that has been really, who defines quirkiness, by the way, um, who's really sort of the instigator, if you will, of our project and of, of this idea of documenting life, or at least thoroughly documenting life, was, who's Dan Jansen. And um, he has, is one of these people that fits the characteristics that I just talked about. He uh, uh, did not start out as a scientist, and he did not start out wanting to do an all-tax-biodiversity inventory, uh, all those things. He, he, I'll, I'll read a little story about him. Jansen's life has been dedicated to the study of the conservation of species and their interactions. All the rest is secondary. Like much in his life, his project to inventory species began accidentally. He is not a taxonomist, not an expert at identifying and naming species. However, in 1978, when he was scrambling along a ravine working on seed predators, he slipped and broke a rib, or perhaps several. Immobilized, he sat for a month in a chair under a six-watt light bulb powered by a generator. This, he was, this was when he was in the tropics, by the way. He was in Costa Rica, which is where he still is. As moths flew to the light bulb, he collected them, a fat gecko waiting for his sup. It was, by good fortune, the best year in memory for moths. They came and came, and Jansen picked them off the wall by the light, killed them, pinned them, and then delicately spread them for later study and identification. It was tedious work, but since he could not move from his chair, he had nothing but time. He waited, collected, and waited more. Within a month, he had collected thousands of moths. Of those thousands, many were collected only once or a few times. When he grabbed a moth, it was often one he had not collected before. Many were new species to science. Over 10,000. Um, this sort of led him to the idea of there's a lot more out here than we know about, and we should be looking at them and finding out what they are. So uh, he's also been up and helped us with not only helping design the program and help write our science plan for our project in the Smokies, but uh, he's been the keynote speaker at our conference. Again, we are doing an all-tax-biodiversity inventory in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We are a partner with the park. Our nonprofit was put together in 1998. The real research started in 2000. To date, as of last Thursday, we are up to 924 species new to science. We've found also a little over 6,700 new species to the park. Uh, and in many cases, these are species that may have been found somewhere else but never documented in the Smokies. And a lot of these things that we look at and we find are small, obscure, but not all of them. Uh, and I'm going to go into some of this more details in just a second. But uh, I guess the amazing thing, and it was amazing to me before I even took this job, and it continues to be amazing, is that we are talking about a, the most visited national park 
that we have. And people are walking around there all the time. Now, obviously, there's lots of places that people don't walk. But what I found and what I continue to find in doing this job is that there are lots of things that people just never have bothered. It's, it's sort of like, and this is what his book is about, there, there are lots of things that people have just never bothered to look about. Either they weren't interested in them, there's only one scientific expert in the whole world, and they're down there with Dan, Ch- Dan Jansen in, in South America, which is where all scientists want to go to study if they're studying natural, if they're studying biodiversity. So we, I suppose, as luck would have it, that's why this project has been as successful as it is, is that we haven't had a lot of people here looking at some of the smaller things. Now, in the Smokies, the big things have been really pretty well documented and studied. We're not finding new mammals. Uh, we're not finding new birds. We have found a couple of new amphibians and a, a, a couple of, of reptiles that were new in their range. Um, but it's, it's, it's fascinating, and I'll talk about something unusual, an 18-inch earthworm found along the, the Appalachian Trail by some maintenance workers. And uh, Keith Langdon, who is, uh, I guess he's the person that we work with the most, DLI works with the most in the park, he, he, this person who kept seeing this worm, it would only be seen when it rained. And so he would call Keith and say, do you know anything about this giant worm I see up here? And of course, as you all know, probably if you've been outside when it rains, worms come out of the ground and sometimes they stretch way out so they can look like they're really big. And so he thought the guy was, you know, just, yeah, just, you know, not, not really. Uh... But he said, if you'll collect it the next time and you'll bring it to me, we'll, we'll look at it. And so sure enough, it rained again. He saw the worms. And he brought it in, and it is a new species to science. It hasn't been named yet. Uh, this sort of leads into what, <clears throat> what we go through all the time with this, with this project, is that th- there's really only one earthworm specialist around, and he's doing all his work in Peru. So he still has the specimen. He's already identified that it is a new species to science, but he hasn't named it yet because there's a long process that you go through to name a species. And so, anyway, I thought that was interesting. And there's lots and lots of stories like that. But biodiversity is a lot of things. It's a complicated uh, scientific term. But these are all flies. And they're all flies that are, have a different niche. And some of them are mimicking bees and, and wasps. Uh, just because that may be a survival technique, that may be the way they ward off predators, that may be the way they hide in the environment. Some of them look like just regular flies. Some of them bite. Um, so anyway, they do all kinds of different things. But in the Smokies, let's see, we have, we have identified 911 different kinds of, of diptera, which are flies, and, and those include fruit flies and uh, house flies and all that. Uh, and then not, 29 of those are, are new to science. I always am amazed, even, the, even if you leave off the new to science number, would you think about walking in the Smokies and there being almost a thousand species of flies there? It's really a weird thing to think about. And, as the person I live with would ask, because we had a fly bio blitz last year and she said, why would you ever want to study flies, look at them, touch them, do anything with them? And so you have to explain, and this is a lot of people's reaction, why are flies important? They do a lot of things for us that we don't know about, as do most creatures. Flies are, are the second most pollinator of, of plants, and, and, and they're very important in, in the fact not only that they do that, but they also are important now because our bee population is declining and disappearing, and we don't know exactly what's wrong with it. So there's a chance and there's a hope, I suppose, that flies will help fill some of those spaces that 
uh, are left when bees are not around to do the pollination for us. Uh, obviously, flies also help decompose a lot of different things, which is the first thing that comes to people's mind when you think about flies and their larvae. Uh, but flies are very important. An interesting number as well that we're still working on, this is a new species of butterfly, and we have over eight, almost 1,900 species of butterflies and moths in the Smokies. And we're dis- we're, they're still discovering new ones. 36 that are new to science so far. This is one of them. I don't always like to say why things are important because I think things are important just because they exist. So I'm not going to always say this is important for this reason. We lo- everybody should love butterflies and moths. And there are 15,000, 12 to 15,000 species of butterflies thought to exist on Earth. And they're still discovering them. And then could be up to 250,000 species of moths. So those are pretty amazing numbers if you think about it. This is a springtail. And a springtail is a tiny little soil creature. And they help decompose leaf litter. They help build soils, which are important for plants and other animals. They're not microscopic, but they're tiny. And we, again, these had not been really studied at all in the Smokies. I think they had three to five that were documented before. And this was Dr. Ernie Bernard over at the University of Tennessee that has done all this work. Um, There are 260 total now, and 60 of those are new to science. This one, this is the rest of the story, um, is named after Lamar Alexander. (laughs) Lamar Alexander helped get funding for the new science center in the National Park. And, And Dr. Bernard, who has been the president of our board, wanted to you know, do something nice for him. Now, you wonder what Lamar Alexander really thinks about being, having a springtail named after him. But it's, it's a great thought because the reason he chose this one is because he thought that the checkered pattern looked like the uh, flannel shirt that he's, Lamar Alexander is famous for wearing. So there is a connection there. Snails. Now, this is not great numbers, but the park is not known for having a lot of limestone-based soils, and that's where you find your high percentage of snails. But they're very important critters because they are one of the few animals that can take calcium up from the soil, and it really um, spread that out under the other animals, uh, give them you know, their little calcium supplement, supplement for the day. But the interesting thing, we just did a bio blitz on snails, and... Um, one of our citizen scientists asked, why are snails important and why would we be here looking at them? Which, you know, every day, I'm sure everybody there at that event was thinking the same thing. Uh, and he did, a great, he did a great job explaining, he goes, I'm going I'm to just tell you one thing. He said, everybody I know loves birds, or at least thinks birds are beautiful and important. And he goes, what we found in the tropics is that where snails are disappearing, birds are disappearing. And the reason is that birds eat snails to build the shells for their eggs. And when those snails are when snails disappear and become are not in the environment anymore, then the, the birds are not able to lay eggs or lay eggs that are they're able to hatch. So it's a very interesting connection, and it's part of the thing that makes some of this really hard to explain. You have to talk for a long time to get to all the details of it. But it, it goes back to the simple idea. I should get Jackie to get up and do her ECDCICA, but we won't get to that today. But everything is connected. And that's the thing that we find, and that's the thing that gets proven time and time again, that everything depends on other things. And even if you think something is not important, sometimes if you take it out of, you take it out of that little food web, it, it causes all these other disasters that you can't predict. So snails are an example of that. 
It's interesting, snails also are found, and you may have noticed this if you've been out and looked around very much, is if you have a black walnut tree, it will be, usually be covered with snails, either around the base or up on the bark. And because black walnuts are known as sort of a calcium pump, they, that's one of their byproducts. So snails are there taking that up. Beetles. Over 2,400 species of beetles. We're getting close to the end of this, or what we think is the end of the discovery of beetles. And 42 of those are new to science. Why are beetles important? They're a food source. They do some pollination. They decompose things, especially like uh, logs, leaves. We may have medical breakthroughs from some of the beetles, predation of other insects. That last part is referring to the whole chapter in the book about the, uh, the beetle that rides the ant. And spiders. Spiders, 533 total in the park. We're still finding those all the time. 41 new to science. I'm, I'm going to talk just a little bit more about um, the last two chapters in the book, which goes really into more of the microbiology, which is not necessarily something I know a lot about, but it's certainly fascinating, and the people who've studied it are fascinating. But one of, one of the interesting things is, and it relates back to what I think is the theme of the book, uh, we, we said early on that they didn't think anything could live at the bottom of the ocean at certain depths, and first it was 300, then 500, then 1,000. And, of course, they kept... As technology improved, we were able to say that's not true, and we found things where we didn't think we would find things. But um, one, one of the major parts of the, of the third part of the book is, is the deep sea vents, which are usually uh, have high sulfur um, deposits or sulfur coming out of the, of the core of the earth, really. And um, so this is where some new, new species were found, and they didn't think things would live there. So, and it's, it's fascinating that Things can live at these high temperatures. Uh, again, it changed our idea of what, what exists and what environment things can, can exist in. Uh, and speaking of the sea, which is another place that we don't know a lot about. We're finding stuff all the time in the ocean. Just yesterday, uh, one of the people I work with sent me a, a link to a new finding of squid in the Indian Ocean, which is 30 feet long. It's a huge, giant squid. It's a brand new species to science that lived in the mountain range at the bottom of the ocean in the, in the Indian Ocean, and you can think 30 feet is pretty big for somebody to miss for this long, but that's how it works. And then my, one of my favorite things about the book, he's a very good writer in that he's, he's funny, keeps you, keeps you interested, is that he talks about us looking for life on other planets when we don't really even know what's on this planet, which is, is a natural inclination, I think. Some people are more interested in those kinds of things, but one of the things he says about this, making fun of humans we don't really even know all the things that exist inside of us, let alone what exists on another planet. So I thought that was funny and, and really important. Why should we continue to look for these things and name them and talk about them and see what their value is? And, and these are reasons. Uh, protection of water resources, soil formations, nutrient storage and recycling, pr- pollution breakdown, um, climate stability, maintenance of ecosystems, recovery from unpredictable events, and then the resources we gain from, from biology and from biodiversity is food, medical resources, wood products, ornamental plants, breeding stocks. This is another big issue that I don't have time today to even go into, but a lot of our uh, domesticated animals are disappearing. They're being not cultivated, and so they're choosing one specific breed. And if something happens with that specific breed, 
it gets some kind of disease or whatever and all the others are gone, then we don't have, uh, we don't have the ability to recreate that. So it's a diversity in genes and species. Uh, and then research, education, and monitoring some of the social benefits, recreation and tourism, and cultural values. And I guess the most important part of all the, that list I just gave you is that all these things are free. <laughs> they don't cost us anything. They exist because we exist and because the earth exists and because the ecosystem exists. And that's one of the reasons they probably don't get any value put on them, unfortunately, uh, or as much value as they should have put on them. We spend most of our time doing damage to the places that have the most biodiversity, unfortunately. 80% of the needs of the poor come from the resources that are in nature. And, and if we're destroying those, we're, we're adding a, another complication to the whole issue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with um, some more from E.O. Wilson about maybe what we could do if we, if we continue at the current rate of deforestation and destruction of major ecosystems like rainforests and coral reefs, where most of the biodiversity is concentrated, we will lose more than half of all the species of plants and animals on Earth by the end of the 21st century. And, the, and then they go on to question it, ask him some questions about what humans could do and what, how the, the effect is on the human population, which is what most people look at, obviously. Um, how will the loss of biodiversity affect human life? On a global, this is Wilson, on a global basis, I have no doubt at all there would be severe effects on the quality of, lo- of life support systems such as watersheds, air quality, and rainfall. For example, in the Amazon rainforest, a large part of the rain that falls comes from the evaporation of the forest itself. If, as the forest is removed, then a major source of rain is also removed, and a substantial parts of the whole Amazon basin would be turned into permanent grassland with the effects radiating out into the breadbasket states of southern Brazil, this would be prone to drought if the Amazon basin dried out. And that's just an example of what could happen. It sort of goes back to what I just said about taking out one small part of an ecosystem and not knowing really what will happen and how how that will affect things. This brings up the question of what individuals can do. Do you think individuals can make choices that matter in the big picture? That's something everyone should do. I would not eat swordfish, for example. It's one of the species driven to commercial rarity. And if you look at this, and this is really a big concern, uh, there are a lot of species of fish that have, al- that have always been fished commercially for human consumption that are either extinct or going extinct. And so they, what's happening is they just move on to another species and they convince us that it's a great, a great species to eat. But a lot of, uh, not just swordfish, but a lot of the fish that as we were growing up, were common or not common anymore. But more important, we think we should be more alert about not buying or using products from species that are protected by the conservation on international trade and endangered species. And that, that's also a big issue. And then he says there are a lot of personal habits that have moderated only in this country uh, could contribute to saving endangered species. And, and he gives an example of eating imported beef which I think we may as a society or as, as Americans be moving away from a little bit. But um, before we realized what was happening, the importation of beef from Costa Rica was a significant factor in removing most of its rainforest. Uh, Costa Rica has been essentially stripped of its forest in the past 50 years, and that was to, to graze cattle, to ship back here. Uh, another example is shade-grown coffees versus open field. They deforest and clear the forest to grow coffee, and so buying shade-grown coffee keeps that from happening. 
So those are just, just some examples. My own concerns and my own, I guess, thoughts about what's happening and what, what Rob Dunn was talking about in this book is there's not enough awareness of the importance of biodiversity in just the general population. Part of that is because science is not probably a well enough studied field by the general populace. And an example is what I mentioned earlier is bees disappearing. Uh, I heard someone talking about he had just had a couple grad students who were hired somewhere out west, and I didn't get all the details, to pollinate plants because there were no no pollinators to do that. And so it's, it's almost amazing to me that we've gotten to the point where we're actually hiring people to do something that we, it seems a daunting task to to have to hire people to pollinate our food crops, but we are headed in that direction. And then, of course, there are special interest groups that continue to deny that some of these things are happening, and it doesn't really take a very smart person to look around, even in your own backyard, and see, see that things are disappearing and being destroyed left and right. So if you, you know what's happening in your own backyard, it's happening everywhere else as well. And then I would say that we all get too caught up in, in everyday life and, and living life. So my thought about what someone could do to sort of change the trends is to go outside and take a hike. And if you have the opportunity, take a, a kid with you. So that, that would be one of the most important things I think we can do is turn people on to science. So I'm going to end with my favorite quotes from the book. Let's make Emily happy. Um, the wild leaps up, and more often than not, we do not even know its name. Scrutiny, it seemed, would resolve some of the greatest mysteries that had faced humans. And then the last, having a measure of what we once were and knew is necessary if we are to understand how far we have come and how far we might go. So that is, that is it for me, and I'll be glad to answer questions if anybody has any, but thank you for being here and listening to me. Yeah, the explanation of what a bioblitz is and how we go about a bioblitz. Um, a bioblitz is sort of a, a term and an idea and an event that, that came out of, the, of doing an all-taxi biodiversity inventory. One of the things that we do in the Smokies, and I think we do really well, that has been done all since the project was created, was involve citizens. Uh, you know, obviously it's an 800-square-mile park. It's a lot, of, a lot of area to cover, and it's not something that one single scientist or even their group that comes with them can do. So the idea of a bio-blitz is, uh, initially, it was to take a 24-hour or 48-hour period and have people just go out and collect everything they could collect. And there would be, obviously, methodologies used that were, they were trained, the, the, citizens, the citizens and the scientists were trained for, and those would come in and we would have specialists there to identify those. And so initially, and many times in, in starting um, an ATBI, that is part of the way you begin them, is to start looking at everything that's there and, and having these periods where you identify as much as you can and you, know, you really increase your numbers of, thing, of especially invertebrates. Uh, with our project, we've, we've really stopped doing bio-blitzes, which are just sort of a general term for everything you might collect. And we do very specific blitzes. So if we're going, like I mentioned, the snail blitz, we were specifically looking for, in a certain area of the park that we thought was high in snails, 
we were specifically had a group of people there who were trained to collect snails and to look for them. And so um, that we, we would term those individually as a snail blitz or a fly blitz. Uh, but a bio blitz is a general term for just a mass collecting and identifying of organisms. I'm wondering what your thought is, kind of the the bigger picture. If you step back and you look at this, you know, every time you talk about these numbers, everybody goes, oh, my God, I can't believe that, you know. But and So beyond just the importance of biodiversity as a whole, what do you, what's your take on what the bigger picture is? Why? I mean, it, it seems like there's a message here somewhere that we know so little, and yet, you know, we still allow ourselves to be surprised by how little we know. Mm-hmm. That's complicated. I mean, I think one of the things I talked about and, and I agree with is that, and he mentions this in the book, and I don't know if I wrote that quote down, about how we're, humans really, we're the center of the, of the universe to us. And so we don't really notice anything else unless there's some reason it becomes important to us. So that's part of why this is out there. Although there are people, and these scientists are examples of that, who are interested in what's out there and spend their whole life and dedicate their whole life to figuring it out. Um, I think the, if I try to make it a simple message, which I'm not really good at because I've never been accused of being concise in my whole life, is that we're looking for answers. And we sometimes don't even know what the question is, but we're looking for answers. And when we're out doing this cataloging and identifying these things, there are answers we're going to get to questions that we may not even know that we have the question to ask yet. So, again, if you just look at from a human point of view... How, how we survive what, uh, medically, uh, through food sources, through just clean water, clean air, and all those things. Um, yes, sir. I just was reminded about so-called primitive cultures and, and how many so-called discoveries were made when anthropologists went and studied these different cultures. And not to be critical of you, but uh, at one point you said, you know, these are things that no one has ever seen before. Um, no, maybe no Westerners have ever right. seen before. I was told the story of uh, some tribe, and they thought that they were cannibals because the women only had a certain number of children. And lo and behold, the women ate these yams, these wild yams. And out of this research, the birth control pill was developed. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to another point. A lot of times I think... Indigenous groups or local groups, either through carelessness or or just maybe not using the correct verbiage that um, that academicians use, will describe a creature and it will be put up there with like the Yeti or the Kubla Cabra or, or you know, the Loch Ness monster, and lo and behold, there is this strange beaver duck thing that was discovered in the 50s, and it's now known as the duck-billed platypus. Mm-hmm. But it was thought of as another Sasquatch, you know. So, I mean, there, there are local people who see things and try to report, like, like the, the, the worm, and scientists think they're crazy. Yeah. And, and, I just... and that, that I mean, those are all good points, and it's true. I mean, it, you're right, and that goes back to what I was saying about Linnaeus, is, is a lot of these things are just that our society hasn't discovered them. They may have been discovered. They just haven't been documented in the way that we've set it up to, to count them as being documented. And there are lots of examples of what you just described of 
And it goes back to what I said about the scientists themselves. Some of those world-famous scientists were ridiculed and still are in many cases uh, because their ideas were different and, un- and not acceptable until it was completely proven that it, they, were, they were right. I mean, they, there, was, there was several things I was, I was reading not long ago about Vietnam, and they have all these unusual creatures, and they continue to find these large, large animals that were they're sort of folklore. They're sort of stories that people didn't believe, and they just haven't really been able to go in and document. They just found like this 300-pound turtle. It's a water turtle that was like this. It was a myth. It was, it was thought to be something that the, the, the people, the villagers, the indigenous people made up, but it's true, and they have that, and they've, they've documented it now. So, I mean, I think those are, that, that's all exactly what I was talking about when I was saying um, it the, the indigenous people are, are a lot like the scientists in many ways that we're talking about, the, the ones that are on the cutting edge. They are not believed at first, or their opinion is not as important as somebody else's opinion, which doesn't make it right, certainly, but that, that's sort of how it is. I mean, that's how we look at it anyway. Other questions? Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me. Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, Reference Librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.